Good morning, His people. Welcome to church. And it's such a privilege for me to bring the word of the Lord to you this uh, very special Sunday morning in Easter 2021. And it's wonderful to be able to um, just celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Today is Resurrection Sunday. On Good Friday, we remembered what Jesus did on the cross, the price he paid for us. But today, we remember that the tomb is empty and Jesus is, is reigning supreme over the nations. And so, my name is Jacques. Um, I'm the senior pastor of His People Church in Peter Maritzburg. And at His People Church, we're passionate about Him, Jesus, and people. And there's our website if you want to get more info uh, and links to other sermons, etc., etc. But this morning, in Easter 2021, I want to speak to you about recentering on Christ. And the, 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 the text I'm going to be using is from Colossians. And I've endeavored just to use scriptures from Colossians this morning. And why Colossians? Because on Resurrection Sunday, folks, we remember that Jesus is resurrected. He's reigning. He's seated next to the right hand of the Father. And He's ruling and reigning over the nations, over the universe. And this whole theme of recentering on Christ is, 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 and when I think about centering on Christ, I was just drawn to the book of Colossians just over and over again. And you'll see why as we unpack it. But before we, before we look at Colossians, I want to just put up this quote. And this is uh, what Don McCullough wrote in his book, The Trivialization of God. He said this, people have created the God of my cause, the God of my understanding, the God of my experience, the God of my comfort, the God of my success. And Don says, any God who fits the contours of me will never really transcend me. Never really be God with a capital G. And any God who doesn't kick the bars out of the prison of my perceptions will be nothing but a trivial God. And this morning I want to say to you, we don't serve a trivial God. We serve a mighty God. And, and we're going to look in Colossians just how Paul was just captivated by this Jesus and how he communicated Jesus to this church in Colossae. So on the next slide, I've got, actually got a map for you. And, and this is a map. This is the Mediterranean Ocean, the blue over here. And right in the middle over there, I've highlighted that is where the city of Colossae was. Um, and when Paul the Apostle wrote this book, he was actually in Rome, right up over there. And um, so Colossians was written by Paul to the church in the city of Colossae, a church planted by Epaphras. And so Paul never actually, when he wrote this book, he'd never visited Colossae. And, and according to history, we don't think he ever, ever got to visit Colossae. But he was in Rome and there was this, this man, Epaphras, that was with him in Rome. And Epaphras had told him about this church that Epaphras had started 
in Colossae, he'd gone there, preached the gospel. People had, re- had responded to this incredible message about the Savior, this Jesus who died uh, to take literally away the sins of the world. People responded in faith to that message, surrendered their life to, to Christ, and this church was birthed. And we believe that Epaphras had actually spent time with Paul in Ephesus when Paul was there for three years. It's only about a hundred miles or two, three days uh, war, uh, journey on foot from Ephesus to Colossae. Very uh, interesting story just related to this church is, did you know that the book of Philemon, one of the, the, the little books at the end of the New Testament, which is also a letter written by Paul at the same time as he wrote this letter to Colossians. He actually wrote the letter to, of Ephesians at about the same time when he was in prison in Rome. But the, the letter to Philemon was addressed to this, this man called Philemon who lived in Colossae. He was a, he was a citizen, a well-to-do businessman in Colossae. And he had this slave called Onesimus. So if you've read that, the book of Philemon, what happened was Onesimus was, was the servant or slave of Philemon. And he had stolen some stuff from Philemon and fled. Anyway, he ended up in Rome and he was in the same jail as Paul. And Paul shared the gospel with him. He responded to this incredible message um, of Jesus, surrendered his life to Jesus, became a Christian, and his life was transformed. So now Paul is writing this letter together with a letter to the Colossians, a letter that Onesimus actually was instructed by Paul to take this letter back to Philemon. And in this letter, if you read it, Paul is just asking and pleading for this servant and servant slave to be reconciled. And the amazing story is that Onesimus, the church history says that um, we, we know Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus after Paul was there. And that Onesimus actually became the senior pastor of the church in Ephesus after Timothy. Amazing story of redemption. And so just I love how these stories interweave with one another. Um, and so I just wanted to give you some background to this city where where, where this letter is addressed to. And so, in this next scripture that I'm putting on the screen, it just mentions uh, Epaphras here. So let's read it. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit, Paul writes, and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it, the gospel, from Epaphras. Our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And so here we see Epaphras, who I've told you a little bit about. He's mentioned also at the end of the book, where Paul just tells how he's praying earnestly for this church that was birthed when he went there and and shared the gospel with them. But I just wanted to, this word gospel, gospel simply means good news. That's what it means. But a very good definition of the gospel is actually written by Dr. Rice Brooks. Uh, And he he wrote the book, God's Not Dead, and the movies, two of them are out. I think there's a third one on its way, uh, God's Not Dead. Um, He wrote this definition. I think it's such a neat definition of the gospel. What is the gospel? 
The gospel is the good news. There it is. That God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, Resurrection Sunday today, proving that he is the Son of God and offering the gift of salvation to all who repent and believe in him. Repent means turn and believe. And it's so, it's so profound, but it's, so, it's also so simple. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ and turn from, from what the Bible calls sin, that moment that you do that, heaven becomes your home. You are, you are born again on the inside. You become a child of God. It's so profound. It's so beautiful. So that is the gospel. This is the simple message that Epaphras took from Ephesus to the city of Colossae. And many people responded to this message. But what I did with Colossians, I did this a little while ago. When I was reading the book of Colossians, I was so struck by how Christ-centered the book was. I was struck by just how many verses Paul was talking about Jesus and who Jesus um, uh, is. And, and, and what I did <laughs> with my engineering background, I did a little table and I, and I, just, I just did this I did in this little spreadsheet. I love, I love working with spreadsheets. So what I did, there are four chapters in, in the book of Colossians. So they're the chapter numbers. And then in this column, this lists all the verses we find in each of the, each of the chapters. They're a total of 95 verses. It'll only take you about 15 minutes to read through the book. It's very quick, it's, but it's so profound. And these are the verses in each of the four books. Then what I did, this is what I did. I went through and I counted the number of verses in each chapter that were Christ-centered, that were talking about Jesus and who he is and, and what he did. And then what I did is I just worked out what percentage of each book was Christ-centered. And amazing, the first chapter, 66% is Christ-centered. In the second chapter, 70% of, that, of the book. The third chapter, 48, and the fourth chapter, which is the shortest by far, 28%. And it's, it's quite amazing because even in the first chapter, he's praying for them and he's uh, thanking God for them. Uh, in these chapters, he's giving them advice on how to live as families and in the marketplace, etc. And in these chapters, he's, he's just um, mentioning all the people that are with him and how they're praying for them as well. An incredible 55% of this book is Christ-centered, just pointing to Jesus. I was quite amazed when I read this book. And, and it is undoubtedly the main theme of this book is the supremacy and the all-sufficiency of Christ. And I want to unpack this and let's just look at this on this Resurrection Sunday because Jesus is not in a tomb. The tomb is empty, hallelujah. The tomb is empty. And Jesus is reigning supreme. He is, he is supreme and he is our all-sufficient Lord. And I want us to just look at this and celebrate Resurrection Sunday. So in this church, why did Paul write these, the, this book? 
Yes, he's literally just raving about Jesus to them. But what was what were the issues they were facing? Why was it Paul so impressed to write this book to a church he'd never been to? And let's just look at it. And and in in the book we find I'm just going to put up four verses that highlight the challenges that they faced in in Colossae, in that city. And Paul writes in uh, chapter two, verse four: "I tell you this." So that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So there was a real threat that, that they could be deceived. Deception could set in by fine-sounding arguments. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. Again, uh, the, the, this, this whole concept of of, 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 of and, and we see the challenges that they faced over there. And then we look in verse 16, Paul writes, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. In verse 18 he says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So here we can see about eating and drinking and, and religious festivals and different days of the week and encounters with angels and people who are describing angels, etc. Quite a lot of stuff that this new community of believers was faced. Um, in Colossae. And so Paul is writing to address all these challenges that they were facing. And I want to submit to you, it's no different to the challenges that we face today. And I want to put it, put it on the screen and say it this way. These are some of the challenges they faced, but I just want you to listen. And just, I think you'd agree with me, it's so similar to some of the challenges we face today. One of them, was Jesus just a prophet or was he just a moral teacher or is he God? How can a diet, what you eat, etc., affect your spirituality? Does it matter what day you worship on? Is it alright to worship angels? Can harsh treatment of the body give spiritual victory? Is it okay to mix the teachings of Christ with other teachings of mystics? etc. And there are more. We could have listed some more. Just to give you an idea of this is the background. This is the world they lived in. These were the bombardment of questions and challenges that this faith community in Colossae were facing. And this was, a, uh, this was around the 60s, in the first century 60s, okay? Between 60, 62, around there. That's when Paul wrote this letter. So this is what was going on in the 60s in Colossae. Paul's answer to each of these questions is quite simple. Jesus Christ is supreme and all-sufficient. And I want, I'm going to unpack this. What do I mean when I say Jesus Christ is supreme and all-sufficient? 55% of the book, he is just basically saying Jesus is supreme and all-sufficient. We're going to just unpack that a little bit. And I wanted to say also that a lot of these threats were, if I could say, threats coming in from the outside. 
But I think some of the, the, the threats that we face that are more insidious, more, more hard to identify, are the threats that come from the inside and cause us also to displace Christ at the center of our lives. As believers, we want Christ at the center, but there are threats that we all face. And, and to highlight this, what I actually did is I did a word cloud for you. I downloaded an app, actually did it on my phone. Uh, I just found it easier. And this is a little word cloud, that picture over there. And can you see it's in the shape of a J? And I chose that intentionally, J for Jesus, okay? But these words, I took words that are all good words, that are all found in Jesus. If you want to serve Jesus, get to know Jesus, these words are significant. I've got words like faith and truth and justice and love and spirit and peace and um, sure, uh, uh, grace I see over there. Quite a few words, presence, etc. And these are all words that are found in Jesus. But this is the reality. If we take any of these words out of Jesus and we revolve our lives around that word, that concept, even though that concept is found in Jesus, folks, just things start falling apart. Things just, they, they just get weird. Things just, just and, and, and every one of them, in my yeah, 35 years of serving the Lord, I've seen these extremes. If you chuck the word, uh, the word hyper in, any, in, in front of these, hyper faith, I mean, I've seen hyper love, you know, hyper grace. Um, I mean, you name it, chuck a hyper in front of any of these. All of these truths are found in Jesus. Jesus, if you want to understand what it looks like, let's look at Jesus, okay? And so if we're going to recenter on Christ, we can't even take any of these beautiful realities of Christ and say, this is the main thing. Jesus has got to be the main thing. And all these things are found inside of him. And so, just so, such an important, just reality that I'm trying to communicate here. Recentering on Christ. And what I want to put up is what's known as the Christ hymn. And we're getting to just trying to unpack what Paul was communicating to this church in Colossae when he wrote this book in the 60s to them and what he did in these verses, chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, the most incredible verses about who Jesus is, not was, who Jesus is. And just about every uh, Bible scholar and commentary that I went to look highlighted that these verses were very likely, um, they, they're in a poetic form, a poem, a creed, or a song, or a hymn that they used to sing or say or declare together. And, and, and I want to I read it. Firstly, I'm going to read, I think I put it, the NIV translation, and then I'm going to actually read the message translation. And just listen to the power of this poem. And, and I, I look forward to us singing it as well in church. So, so worship team, just uh, sharpen your, your songwriting skills. Let's go. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But let me just say what I also did with this. 
in, in, in most Bibles, they use the personal pronouns he, him, or his throughout these six verses. What I did just to highlight that it's about Jesus is wherever that person, those personal pronouns were found, I actually put the word Jesus in there. So let's read it. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. Let's go on from verse 18. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything Jesus might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Wow, it's powerful. So as I said, what I did is I'm just going to put up the message Bible. And, and I, was so, I was so overawed, honestly, by, by these, this portion of Scripture. I felt I didn't want to just dive in and kind of, you know, analyze it or, or dissect it in any way. I, I really just wanted these words of Scripture under the anointing of the Holy Spirit just to speak to our hearts. Think of all the challenges that you may be facing. Paul is writing to this church with all the challenges they were facing. And he was just saying, Jesus is it. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is all-sufficient. Jesus is the answer. So in the Message Bible, it puts it like this. We look at the Son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at the Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, Rank after rank after rank of angels. Everything got started in Jesus and finds its purpose in Jesus. Jesus was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, Jesus organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. Let's carry on. Jesus was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. Jesus is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, Jesus is there, towering far above everything, everyone. We'll get back to that one. So spacious is Jesus, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in Jesus without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of Jesus' death. Jesus' blood that poured down from the cross. And the Passion speaks about 
how Jesus put back to its original intent and restored to innocence again. I just, I just love those words and I thought, let me put them in. But I said, what he's talking about here is the supremacy of Christ. And let's just look at this. The supremacy of Christ, supremacy or preeminence, some Bibles use the word preeminence. It comes from the Greek word proteo, which literally means the first, the highest authority or power, the first place with no second, no close second. The root comes from protos, which um, means first in rank, influence or honor. This, this whole concept, and, and, and I just remember when, when Musa was sharing about, if you think of a race where the first person is so way ahead of the rest of the pack that you can't say that it, there was a close second at all. You would literally say that they were proteo. They were first way beyond anybody else. And that is what Paul is saying here in this Christ team. Jesus is first by a mile. You can't compare him to anyone else. Now, what's, what's significant about this is, let me just highlight this to you, that in, in the, the world that Colossae was, there were the influence of the Jews. There were, there were Jews all around. And very often, what the Jews did to these new Christians, they said, okay, so now you put your faith in Christ, but now you've got to obey the law. So that's why Paul was writing all about, you know, the festivals and days, etc. Because that's typical Judaism. You've got to obey the Sabbath like this and all the rules and regulations. So he's, he, was, he was speaking to that. But also, remember in those days, every city had their deities, their gods that they worshipped. And many cities had multiple deities. And so you could... You could, as a family, worship a couple of deities, and often it was a bit of a thing of putting together, you know, some of this and some of that, etc. And and what 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 he's saying over here is, and 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 the reality is what they were facing is they were saying, well, okay, here's another god, Jesus. Okay, we're going to put him here, you know, put him on display here together with this god and that god. We've also got a Jesus god, and and you know, they're all kind of the same. And Paul's saying, they're not the same. You can't compare Jesus to all the rest. He is way ahead. He's supreme. He is the highest authority by a mile. You can't compare him to the other so-called gods and deities. But, but I just love this beautiful little illustra- illustration. And I hope you can see this on your screen. This is a picture of Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. It's very famous, it's been in many movies, etc. And this statue towers over the city of Rio. Here you can see all these buildings and, and all the yachts down in the harbor there. But what's so significant about this build, this, this statue, it is a huge statue in and of itself. The statue is about 30 meters high on a base of about 10 meters. That gives it, it means about 40 meters high, which is a fairly decent height. What is so significant and makes this so impressive is that it is on a mountain that is 700 meters high. So this thing, the top of that is, is about 740 meters high. That is huge. It towers above Rio. 
And if you compare this statue, there are other Jesus statues around the world. There are actually other Jesus statues that by themselves are higher than, than this one. This one's, you know, 40 meters total height. There are some that are like over 100 meters high. But none of them are on a mountain that is 700 meters high. And so this statue is easily, including its mountain, seven times higher than anything else in the world. It's very unlikely that people would be able to build a statue this size from sea level to the top of this. And so we can say this statue of Jesus is supreme using the, the, the Greek word proteo. It is way, way, way higher than any other. But remember, in the Message Bible, um, the description of Jesus is supreme, towering far above everything and everyone. So this picture is the statue on this mountain is such actually a beautiful picture of how big Jesus is. And what Paul was writing to him, he's not just the same as any other deity, little carved wooden image that you have in your lounge there. He's way above any others. I remember the illustration my pastor gave many years ago. They said, if you want to compare Jesus um, to any other god or deity or de demonic force, etc., he said, think of an elephant and think of an ant. And think of an elephant having a fight with an ant. I mean, it's just, it's just you can't compare them. Why? That is a, another illustration of Proteo. Jesus is supreme. He's way, way, way bigger. He's way um, larger than any other, any other gods by any stretch. The other concept that I said about recentering, we've said, if we're going to recenter on Christ, we 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 got to get, a, get get just the reality that Jesus is supreme. He is way above. He's proteo. He's number one. But the other thing is that Christ is all sufficient. And what does this mean? What is the concept of all sufficiency? Well, all sufficiency, sufficiency means sufficient to everything, infinitely able more than equal to the task, more than adequate, more than competent, and more than enough. And why am I saying this? Because remember, in, in, in Colossae, where there was this concept of take a little bit of this God and a little bit of that God and, you know, whatever you like. And Paul's saying, no, you, you don't, if you have Jesus, you don't need to take a little bit from that deity and that God, and etc. Jesus is all. You don't need it. You get it all in him. You don't need another God for who knows what, you know, for, for rain or a God, you know, for fertility or a God for... He's everything. Everything. He's all sufficient. You don't need to borrow from other gods. And so this was just so, so loudly what he was saying through this letter. And then the third point I wanted to make, and, and you would have seen it, it came out, that Christ is the head of the body, his church. And just think about a head and a body. They work together. And, and yes, you know, I remember somebody years ago also saying, yes, Christ is the head. He's huge. He's awesome. But unfortunately, sometimes if you think of the body of Christ, the head is so much bigger than the body. The body is so undeveloped. And again, that is just a bit freakish if you think of a big head and a small body. And so Paul is very much, he's absolutely 
bringing the revelation, the supremacy of Christ and the all-sufficiency of Christ. But he's also in this book wanting to build the body, build the church. And so he's writing into such practical things of, of how households are to be run, how you meant to treat your workers, how you are meant to be in the marketplace, etc. Why is that? Because the rest of the people in Colossae, they will see what Christ is like by looking at the body. Because they haven't, they haven't come to know the head, which is Jesus. And so this is so sobering that we as a church, as a community, we represent Jesus. People, for many people coming, they, they don't know what the head looks. They look at the body to get an idea of what the head looks like. And so this concept of us being his body is just so significant. And so Paul is very much praying for them. In the beginning of the book, and the end of the book, you can see he's mentioning the prayers that are being prayed for them. Why? Because the body represents um, Jesus to the world. And I want to actually finish this message by simply doing this. is by putting up the prayer that this apostle prays for them. And I was like, Lord, how, if we want to represent you well, what, what must that look like? And I thought there's no better place to go than look at how Paul prayed for, for the church in Colossae. And I'm going to pray that for us. And let's read it first in Colossians 1, verse 9 to 12. Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And that is all. Everything is written after knowing His will. That is the result of His will. Then he says, the next thing he's praying is that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that we may have great endurance and patience. So patience and endurance is the result of that strengthening that comes inside of us according to his power. And then thirdly, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. So it's, if, you, if you look at it, just three simple things he's actually praying. Knowledge of his will, being strengthened by his power, and that we would joyfully give thanks. Three simple things. And folks, I just love praying simple prayers, but Bible prayers. And I'm going to pray this for you. If we are going to put Christ at the center, I'm going to pray these simple three things. Firstly, Lord, I pray that we would know your will. Lord, that we would know your will. And Lord, you say, as we know your will, we will know you. That we would know you, and by knowing you, know your will. Secondly, Lord, I pray that we would be strengthened by your power. Holy Spirit, strengthen us. Lord, that you say that we may have the perseverance and endurance, Lord, in the marketplace, in the classroom, Father. In, the, in our homes to represent you well. And finally, Lord, that we would joyfully give thanks that we have all sufficiency in Christ, that you are supreme, you reign supreme, you are way taller, way higher than any, any other, anything else. Nothing can compare to you. 
We rejoice in that. We rejoice in that, Lord. We give you thanks, Jesus, that you are our God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.